0: Hello, Richard Lane here with the Lancet podcast on Friday, May the 11th. Coming up, I'll be discussing Swedish snus tobacco, that is oral smoke-free tobacco. What are the public health implications for this form of tobacco consumption based on two research articles and a comment published online on Thursday the 10th of May? Before that, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Bill Summerskill, to review the issue of the Lancet dated May the 12th to the 18th. Welcome, Bill. And very much a themed issue this week.
1: Well, yes, it is. This issue is a GI issue, prepared to coincide with the Digestive Diseases Week meeting to be held in Washington DC later this month. As a UK audit discussed in our World Report section concludes gastroenterology has been neglected for too long, with inadequate funding relative to the high burden of disease. So this week's Lancet provides a platform for GI research, presenting a wide range of papers, from those that discuss areas in which our knowledge is incomplete to others which present solid trial evidence, both as RCTs and meta-analyses. But throughout, there is a strong emphasis on patient care. The mismatch between research priorities and the burden of disease is mentioned in the profile of Francis Chan. Chan and colleagues' randomized controlled trial from Hong Kong studied patients who had presented with an upper GI bleed and had been taken non-selective, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for arthritis. A challenge to physicians in many disciplines is how best to provide adequate pain relief for individuals at high risk of peptic ulcer disease. The investigators allocated patients to 200 mg of the COX-2 inhibitor Selecopsig twice daily with or without 20 mg of the proton pump inhibitor Omeprazole. Followed for 13 months, 8.9% of the control group, those taking COX-2 alone, had a recurrent ulcer bleed confirmed by endoscopy, while the 137 patients allocated PPI had no further bleeds. In a linked comment from Ann Arbor, The question of GI and cardiovascular risk is discussed further.
0: That's an interesting result, Bill, not least because when we think of COX-2 inhibitors, quite often we think of controversy, don't we?
1: Well, we do. Certainly following the 2005 trial of uh, COX-2 inhibitors to prevent colorectal adenomas, there was a startling increase of cardiotoxicity. But that's an area which we're learning more about as well. For instance, in another paper in this issue, Enrico Flossman and Peter Rothwell from Oxford reviewed two large randomized controlled trials with a 20-year follow-up. These showed convincingly that aspirin reduces the risk of long-term colorectal cancer, but this is dose and duration dependent, not appearing until after 10 years.
0: Yes, this is an interesting trial, Bill, and can you just give us some background here on on colon cancer in terms of incidence, how big a cancer it is?
1: Well, it's the second commonest cancer in developed countries, carrying a 5% lifetime risk. So this means there'll be 1 million new diagnoses each year. And where this trial is interesting is the previous work had showed that the development of adenomas is reduced by anti-inflammatory drugs. However, with the study by Flossman and Rothwell, we now go one step further in this follow-up and we see that the actual instance of cancers is reduced by this treatment.
0: What implications will this have for practice, Bill?
1: Well, I think the the immediate result is going to be a closer analysis of the view of aspirin. Now, you have to bear in mind that these trials were actually randomized with a different endpoint in mind. So although we have the benefit of long-term follow-up, there's been a fair amount of crossover between groups different degrees of compliance, the doses have varied, and the duration of treatment has varied. So there are many questions that yet remain. I guess the one thing that we can take away from this trial is that taking aspirin in a dose of 300 milligrams, which in some countries is more than is used for cardiovascular prophylaxis, for a duration of five years does seem to confer some benefit.
0: Great, and we've got another research article, Bill, looking at preterm infants and potential use of probiotics.
1: Yes, this is a meta-analysis done by Girish Dishband and colleagues from Subiaco, Australia. They managed to find 12 randomized controlled trials, including almost 1,400 premature neonates, that's less than 33 weeks gestation, who were of very low birth weight, that is below 1,500 grams. Using live probiotic supplements, the meta-analysis showed that they reduced the risk of necrotizing enterocolitis, of death, and decreased the time to full feeds. However, they didn't make any difference in terms of sepsis. One of the problems with interpreting a trial like this is that prematurity itself is the most important risk factor for necrotizing enterocolitis. What we're doing at the moment is looking at ways of relieving the symptoms rather than the cause.
0: And Bill, how are we defining uh, necrotizing enterocolitis and what kind of instance does it have?
1: Well, this is a destructive inflammation of the bowel that occurs between 5 and 10% of neonates of very low birth weight. And the younger and less mature the baby is, the more susceptible to necrotizing enterocolitis.
0: And any other highlights from the issue you'd, you'd like to point out?
1: Well, staying with the theme with gastroenterology, there are two series articles on inflammatory bowel disease by Daniel Baumgarten in Berlin, combined with colleague Simon Carding in Leeds and William Sanborn from the Mayo Clinic. We also have a clinical update on irritable bowel syndrome by Robin Spiller in Nottingham, and a comment written by Daming Fan, president of the Chinese Society of Gastroenterology, and Ji Lu, in which they discuss the strategies for hepatitis B research in China. This is particularly important, as China, with a prevalence of 9%, represents one-third of the global burden of HBV. But don't worry if you're not a gastroenterologist. We have a couple of pieces on the United States Food and Drug Administration, and there's also a provoking comment on the carbon footprint of medical research.
0: Thanks very much, Bill. And just a reminder of the meeting, uh, the GI meeting that this issue is going to, it's the...
1: The Digestive Diseases Week meeting starts in Washington, D.C. on Saturday the 19th. And if any of our listeners are visiting, I hope they'll drop by the Lancet stand where we will have copies of this issue available.
0: Online this week, we published two articles and a linked comment about the use of Swedish snus, that is smokeless tobacco. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the comment, Dr Jonathan Folds, who is director of the Tobacco Dependence Programme at the School of Medicine and Dentistry at the University of New Jersey in the United States.
2: Well, snus is basically the Swedish word for snuff. Snuff tobacco, and we we tend to continue to use the Swedish version of the word uh, to indicate that it's the, it's the type of product that's traditionally been used in Sweden because that product actually differs from the kinds of smokeless tobacco that's used in the rest of the world, including the kind of snuff tobacco used in North America. Basically, it's a moist, fine ground tobacco, and it's, um, it comes either loose, which is it looks like loose tea. Except it's a bit more moist than than dry tea, or it comes in what they call potion patch, which is very again it's like tea except in small tea bags, and it's packaged in tins. the The main difference is that whereas most uh, smokeless tobacco is fermented, such that it, it the the microbes in the product are able to kind of combine with the nitrates and nitrites in the products and it then forms tobacco-specific nitrosamines, which are the cancer-causing agents. Snus is not fermented, rather it's pasteurized. It's heated for about 24 hours with steam and that kills the microbes that then cannot then activate the nitrates and nitrites and therefore does not increase the levels of tobacco-specific nitrosamines. So snus is actually lower in some of these cancer-causing agents than most forms of uh, smokeless tobacco around the world. And how available is it? Well, it's very widely available in Sweden, as, as indicated in the, in the papers just published in The Lancet. In fact, uh, significantly more men use snus in Sweden than actually smoke. It's also used a bit in Norway, um, who are close neighbours of Sweden, obviously. It, it, it transfers across the border there. Uh, and other than that, it's basically only being used just now and introduced very recently in a number of other countries as a test marketing initiative. And part of the reason why this has this kind of public health implications beyond Sweden is that the big multinational Tobacco companies that traditionally make cigarettes have started to buy small Swedish tobacco companies that make snus and market that product only in test markets around the world. And this has all happened just in the last five years. Five years ago, Sweden was the only place that that made and and sold snus and significant
0: quantities indeed and in terms of the studies that we've published online this week which you have reviewed in your comment could you just briefly summarize if you would the two studies one obviously concerns snus and tobacco use among construction workers in sweden and the other is a kind of projections kind of study looking at what would happen if snus was introduced in australia
2: well the the study that was based in in sweden was by an epidemiology group primarily based at the Karolinsky institute They've have data from a long-term cohort of Swedish construction workers, primarily men, and this is probably the the best data we have on the epidemiology of SNUS. because this this cohort have been followed up since um, I think it was like the 1970s, uh, and and it's linked to their healthcare. And so, the, as as is well known, Sweden has very good healthcare records, so they've managed to take the baseline data from recruits to the study and then you know 20 years later look at the kind of diseases that they that they got and compare cigarette smokers snus users and never tobacco users and what they found is in this paper that focused on on cancer basically focused on lung cancer oral cancer and pancreatic cancer and found as you'd expect that cigarette smokers have you know very high rates of lung cancer about 10 times never smokers and 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 10 times snus users. Oral cancer, and this may surprise people, Again, cigarette smokers had significantly higher rates and in fact uh, snus users had similar rates, in fact slightly lower rates than never tobacco users. And the novel finding in this study was that pancreatic cancer is, your risk of pancreatic cancer are significantly raised in snus users, again still less than the rates in smokers.
0: So we find an increase, a doubling relative risk uh, of pancreatic cancer. Yes. Um, whereas when you look at the Australian study, clearly that's, it's a projections uh, model, isn't it, really? But it, yes. but, the, but it's concluding that actually the introduction of snus that's assuming that people who smoke tobacco can, s- significant numbers can switch to snus, could have real public health benefits.
2: Yes. I mean, in fact, this was not... I mean, the, the novel finding that was emphasized in the Swedish uh, construction worker study was, because it's new, was the finding that snus increases your risk of pancreatic cancer. But included in the data in the paper, and it's actually something we mentioned in the comment, was the fact that if you, if you looked at the whole male population in the, in, the, in the study and you compared the risks of those three cancers in people, men who'd u- ever used snus with men who'd never used snus, men who who had ever used snus had a significantly lower risk of lung cancer, oral cancer, and a lower risk of pancreatic cancer, although not significantly, uh, than men who had never used snus. And, you know, and you think, well, wait a minute, does that not contradict the main finding of the study? And the answer is no, because the main finding of the study was comparing snus users with never tobacco users. But if you look at the kind of overall effect in the population it seems to be that by using snus you're less likely to smoke and because smoking is a greater risk of pancreatic cancer by using snus you're actually less likely to get pancreatic cancer than people who didn't because they are more likely to smoke
0: thank you for clarifying that yes i was beginning to get a bit confused but you just (laughs) explained it nicely so but in terms of the australian paper i mean very clearly I mean, it is a hypothetical modelling paper, isn't it, in a sense, but yes, from a but public health point of view, snus does have the potential <coughs> to reduce um, the use of tobacco smoking and, and the obvious health um, problems associated with that.
2: Absolutely. Now, this, the, the Australian paper um, has is not just focused on cancer because obviously smoking causes many, many more diseases than cancer and cardiovascular disease is a big one, but COPD you know, is a massive one, uh, and other respiratory diseases. So they've taken, you know, the best available data on risks for those diseases from smoking, and we've got, as you know, excellent data on that. And then they've taken an an expert paper, expert review panel, who estimated the relative risks of those diseases from SNUS. um, And probably I would say they use fairly cautious estimates there, in the sense that I don't think they were underestimating the risks from snus from those diseases, for example, they actually assumed a risk for diseases like pancreatic cancer and oral cancer, which the, the Swedish study just published in The Lancet did not find an increased risk of, of oral cancer, and, and then they modelled the population effects, um, and their modelling, uh, you know, again was based in, on some reasonable assumptions. Legislators could see that the, the, the plan would be for Sweden to join the European Union, and it was a, they were aware that there was wide use of smokeless tobacco in Sweden at that time. There was less data available on the epidemiology of of snus use, and the general view was, once they join the European Union, if they're allowed to continue to use this product, they may spread throughout the rest of Europe, hmm. and and that you know we we think that could be a bad thing. So let's ban it within the EU to prevent that from happening. And this was like twenty years ago. The Swedes, of course. Uh, you know, like their product, and they, they said, we won't. if we have a referendum, we'll vote against joining the EU if we can't keep snus. So they were given a special dispensation to keep snus. It was banned in the rest of Europe. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. Basically, Sweden has the lowest smoking male smoking prevalence in Europe and about the lowest lung cancer and oral cancer rates in Europe, and it's partly because they've kept their snus. Uh, now now that we have more evidence and health risks from snus, um, and and we have a hopefully a, a better balanced view of relative risks of different products. I'm I'm hoping that people can come to see that that allowing t- cigarettes to have a monopoly as a as a tobacco nicotine delivery product in Europe is actually not a wise public health policy, and allowing a much less harmful product on the market to compete with cigarettes would would if anything have. A positive effect. I mean, th- there's a there's a few caveats we have to recognise here. So, one is that not not all smokeless tobacco has the lower level of toxins that Snus has. So, I think one thing that would be a good idea is is to review the legislation, consider opening the market to Snus throughout Europe, but specify uh, standards for the product so that higher carcinogen products. From other countries would not be allowed and in fact there's a fairly straightforward way to do that because one of the main manufacturers has produced a quality standard which specifies maximum persis- permissible levels of a-, a large number of toxins and it, it makes some sense so that the only product that should be a- allowed on the market to compete with cigarettes is a product that is actually very like the product that we have this good epi- epidemiological data from sweden on so it's about regulation it's, about, it's partly about regulation, but here's what I would say, you know, you know, in the United States just now we are trying to get Food and Drug Administration to, to regulate tobacco, we've been trying to do that for decades almost, uh, and sometimes, you know, for various other reasons legislation doesn't occur, and, and I'm saying, you know, if we don't go on and, and, and change this by legislation and have regulation, which is the best way to do it quickly, then we should just let, I mean, if we don't do it quickly, then we should just open the market and let Snus and the other products on the market because none of them are as harmful as cigarettes. Uh, and, and you know, you, you, don't, you don't need to think about this for very long to figure it out. Mo- some of the main diseases that are caused by smoking are diseases of the lung. You know, lung cancer, COPD, etc. A product that doesn't go into your lung via smoke obviously doesn't cause those diseases, and that's been verified in one of these studies. And so even if snus had the same risks of all the other diseases, it doesn't have any of those risks. Um, so it's obviously a less harmful product. Um, and, and so and, and so are the other smokeless products, for that matter. So it doesn't make sense to me to not allow those products to compete with cigarettes. Indeed.
0: And it seems a bit of a no-brainer to me, actually. It seems so obvious reading the analysis, but
2: we'll just have well, to wait, wait it and see It does seem obvious, happens. but I mean... People like myself who, who state this obvious fact actually, at least in the United States, I get very strongly criticised for it because you're perceived as saying something that's pro-tobacco. And I say my my interest is in public health. I don't. I'm not. I'm not particularly interested in tobacco companies or tobacco industries. I'm interested in what will result in a in lower sickness and premature death in the population. And and that's that's the thing. And that's what we've got to aim for not be just anti-tobacco, but pro-health.
0: Dr Fodds, that's a great way to end the interview. Thank you very much for talking to The Lancet.
2: Thank you.